And if you would open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 7. If you will follow along with me as I begin reading with verse 9, going through verse 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent, his, Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and died, and he and our fathers, and they... And and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Let's pray. Almighty God, as your word has now been opened and read and as I seek to proclaim it faithfully, I ask for your help. And I ask that you would help your people as they hear your word. And God, lastly, I ask if there are any here who do not know you, who belong to this world rather than to you, that you would open their hearts and their eyes um, and their ears and by your Spirit would uh, regenerate them and bring them to Christ. I ask in his name. Amen. It is my thoroughgoing conviction that the entire message of the Old Testament can be summarized in two succinct statements. I may be oversimplifying things a bit to go as far as to say that the entire message of the Bible can be summarized in two succinct statements. But here are these two statements. The first is that the Old Testament teaches us that human beings are sinners. Originally I wanted to overview the message of the the Old Testament, take you all the way through the history of the Old Testament and prove this point. I decided against it. Uh, However... I think the point still stands. In fact, we'll be able to see even in Stephen's references to, uh, to, to Joseph and his brothers just how true this statement is that all humanity are sinful, that we are sinners. Secondly, the second statement is that the Bible teaches us that God pursues sinners with His grace and His mercy. Those two simple statements, we are sinners and God pursues sinners with His grace and mercy, 
really do, in a very simplified form, summarize the message of the Bible to us. Sadly, these two points were lost in ancient in ancient Israel. In fact, as you go through the Bible, you see God teaching these things, and you see God's people forgetting it. So that when we come to the time that Jesus lived here on earth, these two simple statements, these two simple truths, had been almost completely forgotten. In fact, after the church was born, the church then struggled to remember these things. The Apostle Paul had to write the book of Galatians, saying, remember that you are sinners, in order that you might remember the true grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And as surprising as it is to me, these two simple truths remain elusive. The early church began to lose sight of these truths within its first few generations. And God raised up Augustine to remind the church of these two simple truths. But after his death, the church quickly forgot them. And they went for centuries without really remembering what these two statements meant. And so, they had, for all intents and purposes, been forgotten. But in 1517, there was a young monk that, uh, a young German monk named Martin Luther. And as he was studying the Bible, he was captivated by a little phrase in the book of Romans the just shall live by faith. And this phrase stumped him because he, along with the entire church, had bought into the errors and had forgotten the truths that I had been stating. The reason these truths are so hard to remember is because there were two errors that are always competing with these two truths. Uh, These errors keep arising in the church, keep squelching these truths, because these errors appeal to our pride. They also appeal to our sense of control, because these errors teach us that we can actually have control over God. What are these errors? These errors essentially state that we have the ability to reach up to God. In other words, we're not as bad as the Bible says we are. We are sinners, but we're not really dead in our sins. Maybe sick in our sins at best. And so that's the first error. We have the ability to reach up to God. The second error is God has lowered Himself down to the point where we can actually reach Him by our own efforts. And so these two errors attack then these two truths that we are sinners 
and that it is God who pursues sinners in His grace and in His mercy. Martin Luther was stumped by this little phrase, the just shall live by faith, because he thought that the church required him to live by obeying the church's teachings, by doing what the church wanted him to do. And so he thought that fellowship with God could be attained by obedience. The problem was, as Martin Luther began studying the scriptures, he began finding out more about God, and at the same time he was finding out more about himself as a consequence. He was finding out just how holy and glorious God really is. And as he saw God, he realized how great a sinner he was. And he realized how impossible it was for him, a sinner, to actually attain to the righteousness of God that God required of him. And so for Martin Luther, what this did was it made him change his view of God. He became to view he came to view God as mean and angry, holding out life, and yet saying, This life you cannot have because you can never attain to it. same time that Martin Luther was struggling with this and growing angry with God, the church of his day was starting a building program. They wanted to build all the great buildings that you would find in Rome uh, today. They didn't have the money, so what they started doing was they sent out an edict that if you would simply give money to the church that would go to this building program, then you could earn for yourself uh, life with God. In fact, you could also, for your relatives, you could get them out of purgatory sooner. There was a little saying, I can't quote it in the German of the time, but it still rhymes when you translate it over into English. When a coin in the coffer clings, another soul from purgatory springs. This practice incensed Luther. He knew that this was wrong. He knew this was not taught in the scriptures. Luther, as he's wrestling through this, also began to realize that it is not by anything he could do to enter into heaven, but rather it was by God's grace alone. What he came to realize is when the Bible says the just shall live by faith, that it was faith that locked in to God's, um, into God's righteousness, that God promised a righteousness that we needed in order to be able to enter into His presence. You know the passage in Romans chapter 3, but now a righteousness from God, to which the law and the prophets testify, has been made known. But this law 
is apart, I mean, this, this righteousness is apart from the law. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Everything clicked in Martin Luther's mind. He realized the just shall live by faith. It is not my righteousness. It is not what I can do to attain to this righteousness. I simply, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ and what He did. He was perfectly righteous. He died a righteous death. And He died a righteous death for sinners. And so He came to recognize that this little phrase, the just shall live by faith, is faith in Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther recognized this, what he had done is in effect rediscovered these two truths that I mentioned a few minutes ago. That we are sinners and that God pursues sinners by His grace alone. Martin Luther, in discovering these two truths, rediscovered the message of the Bible. And so Martin Luther took these two truths He applied it to this practice of indulgences, of giving money in order that uh, you could buy your relative's way out of purgatory, in order that you could buy your way into fellowship with God. He took these two truths, he applied it to this practice of selling indulgences. And so what he did was he wrote a treatise against this practice. This treatise was he put down into 95 short, succinct statements wrote it down on a large piece of paper, took this piece of paper down to the to the the church where he had been ministering and nailed this uh, document to the door. The, the church that he was ministering in, or the city in which he was ministering was the town of Wittenberg. And so he nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and thus the Protestant Reformation was born. The reason why I mention this is I want us to look at these two truths this morning lest we forget them. And we would be prideful to think that we are immune from forgetting about these two truths. These truths, I believe, actually appear in our text. And so let me remind you that as we are surveying the book of Acts, where we are, we are in Acts chapter 7. Stephen has been been hauled in before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. He is being tried for heresy. And so Stephen now is giving his defense. We looked at verses... um, 1 through 8 of the beginning of his uh, defense and here was his defense he made charges against the Sanhedrin he said that it was not he who was guilty of heresy but rather uh, the religious leaders in all the, the, the established Judaism that they were in the ones who were guilty of heresy is charged against them that they were trusting in religious formalism rather than trusting with a true faith in the living God and that because they were trusting in religious formalism in religious rituals that they were rejecting the Messiah who was Jesus Christ 
And so his speech to them, or his sermon to them, his defense to them, continues in verse 9. And the key to understanding verses 9 through 16 is, I believe, uh, verse 9. And so let me read verse 9 again for us. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Notice the word here that he uses. And the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs that he's speaking of who were jealous of Joseph? Well, these were Joseph's ten older brothers. Why does he use the word patriarchs? Why doesn't he say Joseph's ten older brothers or Joseph's brothers? Why does he use the word patriarchs? I believe the reason he uses this term is because he is attacking their religious formalism. To use the word patriarchs, well, the patriarchs are to be reverenced. Faith of our fathers, we like to sing. The patriarchs are held in high esteem by the Jews. But Stephen uses the word patriarchs to underscore that the forefathers of the entire Jewish religion were strikingly wicked. That they were motivated by jealousy. So motivated by jealousy that at first, and he doesn't mention this here, but everyone in the room that he was preaching to knew this, at first they were going to murder him. To them they came up with a plan B. They sold him into slavery. They were so motivated by their jealousy. Think about this. The patriarchs. Those whom they held in such high esteem in that room in the Sanhedrin in the religious council. They were so jealous. Those patriarchs were so jealous that they they did indeed sell their brother into slavery. They went home. They told their father that their brother had been killed by animals. And they effectively wiped their younger brother out of their family. Let me ask you. Would you be capable of such wickedness? Can you imagine having a jealousy arise in your heart against a loved one that would cause you, first of all, to contemplate murder, and secondly, to act out the crime of selling your own little brother into slavery? Stephen's point to the religious leaders By using the word patriarchs, he is saying, you religious leaders, you are no better than the patriarchs that you esteem. Stephen's larger point to us this morning is that the moral depths to which the patriarchs had sunk that we are able to reach those same depths. In other words, we are likewise sinners. 
pause with me and go back just a few, um, a, a couple of generations. Think about Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith. Remember how we saw that uh, Stephen said originally Abraham was an idolater. But God called him. He left his idolatry. He began to follow God. However, Abraham did not leave behind his sin. Abraham continued to sin. He continued to be a liar and a coward. Remember how he told his wife when the local king asked if you are my wife, lie to him, tell him no, that uh, really, that you are my sister. Wives, how would you feel about Abraham if he did that to you? And he did it twice. Or take Isaac, his son. Isaac played favorites between Jacob and Esau. And I told the, the uh, children about Jacob. He was no better than his brother. He cheated his brother out of his birthright. He stole his brother's inheritance by deceiving his father. He had to flee his brother, went to live with his, his uh, uncle, and then he cheated his uncle out of much of his wealth, then fled from his uncle. Along the way, you find jo- uh, Jacob uh, offering these prayers up to God. Remember Jacob's ladder as he's uh, fleeing on his way to his uncle's house? If you look closely at that prayer, it is a very manipulative prayer. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. There was nothing in Jacob's life to recommend him to God. It was God in his mercy that um, pursued Jacob. Not only that, but now we have Joseph's brothers. Among the ten patriarchs that Stephen mentions, two of them were murderers. Remember the incident at Shechem? All ten were liars. Two of them committed incest. And we could go on and on from there Stephen's point is all humanity is ensnared by sin man is thoroughly and totally depraved by nature when we entered into this world even at our conception the Bible says that we were ruined because of sin that we were helpless to do anything to help ourselves. That we were helpless to help God get us out of this mess. That we indeed are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are in such a condition that we cannot be saved without the special and direct grace of God. In fact, the only expectation any of us can have apart from God's grace is that we will suffer His unmitigated wrath. 
that is the only thing that we are worthy of. To suffer His wrath. That is our condition. It wasn't only the condition of those self-righteous religious leaders that Stephen is speaking to. But it is the condition of every human being that has ever been born except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to own that about yourself? I told you about the little lady in my first church when I had preached on uh, Romans uh, chapter 3 verses 9 through 18. And it talks about the greatness of our sin. She came up to me and she said, I know that the Bible is true, but that does not describe me. Are you willing to own what the Bible says about you and your sinfulness? Stephen's point to the to those religious leaders was that they were underrating the evil of the, of, of their sin and they were overrating their moral uh, capabilities. He was saying to them, "If the patriarchs are sinners, then so are you." My charge to you this morning is to say, "If the patriarchs." We're sinners. So are you. There's another reason why Stephen, I believe, used the word patriarchs as I was looking at this passage this week. It's because what was Joseph? Joseph was a patriarch. And Stephen is including um, Joseph in this statement as well. Joseph was a sinner just like his brothers. So then the question becomes, why or how did Joseph avoid the, the, the moral depths that his brothers so easily fell into? How was he able to, to avoid this, um, this moral degeneracy? Well, there's a phrase again in verse 9 that helps us answer that question. At the end of verse 9 it says, And God was with him. That one little phrase makes all the difference in the world. The first thing we learn in the Bible about Joseph as a person is that God was working in his life. Remember how we, uh, if you look back in the scriptures, Joseph had a couple of dreams. Those dreams foretold Joseph's future. God was the author of those dreams that Joseph had. And he was telling Joseph, here's what's going to happen in your life. And then God was with Joseph. He was with him through many impossible situations, not only in his being sold into slavery, but then he went down for 13 years, was uh, worked tirelessly um, as a slave in Egypt. And then... Um, he was accused falsely of trying to rape the master's wife. Then he was thrown into jail unjustly for over two years. And there he languished. But God was with him. And God was with Joseph when God orchestrated um, the events that led to Joseph's release from jail. And not only his release from jail, but Joseph ended up becoming second in charge over all of Egypt. 
God is doing all this for Joseph. God is doing all this for a sinner. He is caring for Joseph. But here, is, as I was meditating on this, this is what really struck me. Why is God allowing Joseph to go through all these struggles? You know what the Bible says? You know what Joseph says? God did all this to me in order that I might save my brothers. In other words, God is using Joseph and using his suffering in order to save his brothers who were so wicked. That's the second half of this this truth. That's why we can own our sin. And we can own it without being afraid. Because God loves sinners. He pursues sinners. He pursued not only Joseph. He pursued his ten brothers that had sold him into slavery. The passage, as we we could go on and look at this passage and look at the famine that ended up bringing Joseph's brothers uh, down to Egypt. But the points I want you to see this morning is that we indeed are sinners, but God loves sinners. First application I want to make this morning, I've already made it um, at some length. Are you willing to recognize that you indeed are a sinner? If you are unwilling to recognize that you are a sinner, you are closing the door to the grace of God. Secondly, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you trust in Him alone? The reason the Lord Jesus came here to earth, the reason He was willing to be stretched out on that awful cross, to have those nails driven into His hands and into His feet, to have that crown of thorns placed on His head, to have His body ripped open by the lashes that He received unjustly, was so that He could pursue sinners so that He could die in their place, so that we, through Him, might have a righteousness not our own, but a righteousness that comes completely and wholly outside of ourselves, that comes from Jesus Christ. And it comes not by our goodness, not by our efforts, but simply trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Do you trust Him? Reformation Day is a good day to trust Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank You for Jesus. Even as we survey our last 24 hours, Lord, we can see many things through our words our actions our desires our thoughts towards other people that show how foolish it is for us to try and work our way 
into fellowship with you. We see how far short we fall. We see that your word indeed is true, that we are sinners. But on every page of Scripture, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we see you pursuing sinners and saving them by your free and unmerited grace. God, again, I pray that on this Reformation Sunday, on this Sunday that we celebrate the rediscovery of justification by faith alone, I pray that everyone here under the sound of my voice would trust in Jesus. I pray in His name.